This is Silver Star Bible School, 2009. Our main theme for the school is the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. This is class number one. Our speaker is Brother Ken Stiles. His overall theme is the blessings of forgiveness. And our title for today's class is God's Righteous Basis. Our reading has been Exodus chapter 30, verses 20 through chapter 33. We call upon our brother Ken. Thank you, Brother Mike, and good morning, everyone. We're quite pleased to be with you this week. It's a, a blessing and a privilege for Sister Diane and I to be, uh, to be among you. The subject we are to consider this week is a new subject for ourselves. We're still in the, uh, in the process, so to speak, of reviewing the wonder and the magnitude of forgiveness. And I only say that because I anticipate in, uh, in future years, if the Lord remains away, that uh, additional insights will be gleaned and look forward to uh, being able to share with you uh, my thoughts and the hearing of, uh, of your thoughts in our discussion. We don't know how much time we have left before our Lord returns. Prophetically speaking, the political, religious, and social conditions described in the scriptures at the time of the end are nearly all in place. Whatever remains to be fulfilled could easily be accomplished after we have been taken to judgment. We also don't know just how far the immoral conditions in society will deteriorate by the time the end is reached. But our ecclesias need to be prepared for more treacherous times than we have had to face in the past. It is critical that our ecclesias dedicate themselves to strengthening the faith of individual members and building strong families and strong inter-ecclesial relationships that promote holiness and godliness. But another way for us to be prepared for the dark times that are prophesied about in the last days is to learn how to forgive one another and to encourage sinners, brethren and sisters who have fallen by the wayside to be reconciled to God. The failings are inevitable given the conditions we live in. To to think otherwise is to deny prophecy. The Lord Jesus Christ warned us in the very last days there would be an outbreak of wickedness. And it's to deny the, the human nature that we all know that we possess. So that the failings of our members and our young people are likely only going to escalate as the day of our Lord approaches. How we respond to those failings as ecclesias, as individual members, as the sinners who fall victim to sin, and as those who are sinned against will determine in the end whether sin will prevail when such circumstances arise or God's righteous principles. Over the course of these classes, we hope to examine the, uh, the following issues. Number one, and I apologize if I'm in the way of anyone, when should I forgive my brother who sins against me? At the time of the sin or after he has repented? 
What are the righteous principles upon which God forgives us? Why does God forgive us? Why does God link his forgiveness of me with my forgiveness of those who sin against me? When did Jesus forgive those responsible for his crucifixion? How are the memorial name, the character of God, and the eternal purpose and forgiveness all connected? What was the focus of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8 at the time of the temple's dedication? And how did this relate to Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9? When did Joseph forgive his brothers? Is God's forgiveness of us the same as our forgiveness of each other? In Nehemiah 9, why does Ezra cite the incidents of Exodus 32 and Numbers 14? Likely the two most significant sins that the nation commits back in those early days. In his appeal to the nation, in his day, to make a lifelong covenant to become God's servants. Will the basis of forgiveness in the kingdom be the same or different than it is today? Given the dark days prophesied in scripture at the end time, does this mean the ecclesia needs to be prepared to extend forgiveness more frequently than in past generations? How does my forgiving others lead me to righteousness? Did the 120,000 persons in Nineveh meet God's righteous requirements forgiveness, for forgiveness, or was this just an exceptional situation for which God used a different basis for forgiveness? Can a person be converted from sin more than once in his lifetime? When did Stephen forgive those responsible for putting him to death? Why doesn't God forgive the unforgiving? How is it that a saint who commits a grievous sin and repents can emerge forgiven and a stronger disciple? What did Moses have to learn about forgiveness following the events of Exodus 32 that we just read? And lastly, are there some sins and others we should simply ignore? If so, what are they? So those are some of the issues we'll be looking at, Lord willing, in our studies this week. And what we will find in our study is that there are clear godly principles which govern forgiveness and how and why God extends it and how and why and when he asks us to extend it to others. I have witnessed in my own limited experience, probably the same limited experience as most of us in this room, that when these principles are honored and are followed, even after severe sin occurs, the outcome is marvelous. It's one of recovery, of renewal, rejoicing. Brethren are reconciled to God and brethren are reconciled to each other. And God's righteous principles are vindicated. But I have also witnessed situations in which these principles following severe sin were not followed and the outcome was disastrous. Devastation and destruction overwhelmed those involved. 
Families were torn apart, ecclesias were rent asunder, and worst of all, God's word was dishonored. There was no reconciliation with God or between brethren, between brethren, and the only winner in the situation was sin. So there is great wisdom to be gained in coming to know and understand forgiveness as God defines it, and the righteous basis and the righteous principles that he has established to conform our life to. These will teach us how to forsake the way of sin. They can save us from sin, not because it provides simply a covering for our sins, but if we will embrace the principles of forgiveness, not only will our sins be covered, but God will teach us how to forsake sin's way. The subject of sin really begins with identifying the problem, sorry, the subject of forgiveness. In its simplest form, sin arises from man disregarding two great commandments, either in disobeying God or in man's failure to do what is right to his fellow man. You don't need to turn these up, but in Isaiah 59, verse 2, we know that our sins separate us from our God. Isaiah writes, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. The fellowship that God desires with man, having created man for this very purpose, is interrupted because of sin. Isaiah 43 verse 24 says that our sins are a burden to God and they weary God. Isaiah writes, Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money. Cane being that fragrance that was imported from uh, outside of Israel that was used in the, uh, as an ingredient in the holy oil. Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, now, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. But the prophet also identifies how God provides the answer to the problem of sin. God forgives us, not because we deserve it, or because we have earned it, but for his own name's sake. So in verse 25 of Isaiah 43, he writes, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and I will not remember thy sins. At the heart of this subject of forgiveness is the question, why does God forgive sins? And and not only forgive our sins, but he forgives us, as we know, over and over and over and over again. We see it repeatedly in Israel's history. Time and again he forgives them when they repeatedly sinned against him. And each of us know it's true from our own personal experience. God forgives us as he forgave Israel. And the answer, brethren and sisters, is because God is at his core a forgiving individual. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's how he lives. We'll see that it's what he lives for. Micah 7 verse 18 says that he delights in pardoning our iniquities. Psalm 98 says he is ready to forgive us at any time. It's what he anticipates doing. He doesn't forgive reluctantly. He doesn't forgive begrudgingly. 
Forgiving is part of his core character. It's part of his moral nature. If you were to ask someone in the room to describe my character, someone who knows me well, they could likely draft a list of characteristics. Hopefully some good, but assuredly some not so good. But if you were to ask someone to describe God who knows God well, on their list near the top would be that he is forgiving. He won't compromise his righteous principles. He won't forgive, as we'll see, just anyone under any circumstances. Nor will he forgive any and all sins, regardless of the sinner's outlook. But within the scope of his righteous principles, he will forgive all sin and all sinners, because he lives to forgive. It's God's forgiveness that is stressed to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34, when Moses saw both the physical and the moral glory of Yahweh. When Moses heard the voice, Yahweh, Yahweh El, merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness or loving kindness and truthfulness or faithfulness. But what is the overriding collective behavior of these five characteristics? It's in the next verse, in verse 7, when he says he forgives, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Forgiveness, as we'll see this morning, is bound up in the memorial name. It's bound up in God's glory. It's bound up in his purpose. His purpose is to fill the earth with his glory. And forgiveness is part of the means by which he achieves this. The reasons for the spectacular revelation in Exodus 34 of his moral glory and physical glory begin back in Exodus 32. We're quite familiar with the story, one of Israel's greatest sins. And what we find in the events of these chapters is that there is a right way and a wrong way to go about seeking forgiveness. Unless the divine principles surrounding forgiveness are honored and followed, a sinful people a sinful person will remain unforgiven. Moses has a wrong understanding of forgiveness in chapter 32, and he will appeal to God for Israel to be forgiven on a wrong basis. And God will reject his appeal for forgiveness, and the people will remain unforgiven. It's only after Moses becomes educated in the ways and the character of God, specifically with respect to forgiveness, that he can then reappeal to God on behalf of the nation. And this second time, based on a different appeal, will achieve a different outcome. So we will find that not only are there divine principles but there, that must be honored, but there are also specific steps that sinners must take before they can find forgiveness. And we will watch an unforgiving Israel take those steps and find forgiveness. In chapter 32, Moses had been in the mountain, as we know, for 40 days and 40 nights. While he was gone, the people grew impatient and longed for Egypt. They had been taken out of Egypt, but the raw lusts of the flesh still dominated their thinking and their behavior. Chapter 32 is a vivid reminder of what happens when idolatry takes hold in our life. Verse 6 says, And they rose up on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. 
And Yahweh said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. The word for corrupted there in verse 6 is the same word that we find back in Genesis 6, in the days of Noah. And it describes the behavior of the people in verses 11 and 12. The word means to decay, to ruin. The Israelites had become just like the people of Noah's day. They started out with a golden calf, sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the word for play there means to sport or to jest, and it's used of sexually immoral situation. In Genesis 39, verse 14 and 17, regarding Potiphar's wife in the situation with Joseph. It's used again in Genesis 26, at verse 8, when Isaac was seen sporting with his wife, and it was apparent to Abimelech that this was a husband and wife, not a brother and sister. So that what started out as a meal in worship of Egyptian gods, back in Exodus 32, quickly led to the kind of immorality that accompanied Egyptian worship. The same immorality that accompanied idol worship in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Unless we think that we cannot be overtaken by idolatry, leading to moral corruption. Have a look afterwards at the warning of Paul in Ephesians 5 where he links fornication and uncleanness. And the word uncleanness in Ephesians 5 at verse 3 is the same word for uncleanness in Romans 1 verse 28. Sorry, verse 24. Where it says, God gave the people up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So what Israel was doing that day at the foot of the mountain was practicing the immorality that they had seen in Egypt. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians 5 that covetousness is idolatry, and he links it with whoremongering. The reason is that those who worship idols in the place of God give themselves over to the lust of the flesh. Their carnal thinking becomes their carnal behavior, and that is exactly what was happening at Sinai in Exodus 32. They had given themselves over to idol worship and immorality. Their carnal thinking had become their carnal behavior. Their sin was enormous. The very God they had declared that they would obey in chapters 19 and 20, they were now breaking their covenant with him. The sin of the people cannot be overemphasized. And Moses recognizes the enormity of it. God's immediate response to Moses is in verse 9. He says, I will destroy them all and make of you a great nation. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Moses then appeals to God in verses 11 to 13 not to destroy them. And as a result of his intercession, God repents of the evil he had intended against them. And verse 14 says, Yahweh repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. But make a note, brethren and sisters, that they are an unforgiving people. Sorry, an unforgiven people in verse 14. Moses comes down the mountain with the two tablets of stone. And while God has agreed not to destroy them, 
He has not yet forgiven them. The first proof of this is in chapter 32, in verse 30 to 32, where Moses speaks of the need the next day to go up to see Yahweh and appeal to him to achieve an atonement for the people. On the morrow, in Exodus 32, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto Yahweh and said, O this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. What Moses is offering is to have his eternal life given in exchange for the forgiveness of the people. After 3,000 had been slain by the Israelites, likely the ringleaders in this event, they are still not forgiven. Even after the plague described in verse 35 at the end of this chapter, they are still not forgiven. Because the death of rebels and the plague did not bring about forgiveness. Because forgiveness is not achieved by the death of wicked people. The second proof that they are not forgiven is when we come to Exodus 34 after Moses sees the outstanding revelation of God in the mountain. In his response in verse 8, he bows his head and worships. But they are still not a forgiven people. We read in verse 8, And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. In verse 9, he is still looking for God to forgive forgive the enormous sin of the people committed back in chapter 32. And he said, If now I, Moses, have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and and take us, sorry, for thine inheritance. So the conclusion then is that sin of Exodus 32 has not yet been forgiven when Moses ascends the mountain and sees the glory of Yahweh. It will not be forgiven until verse 10 when God declares that it will be he who goes among them to drive out the Gentiles in the the land. In chapter 33 at verse 2, he said he was no longer going to accompany them and he would send his angel. Now in chapter 34, he recommits to to sending the angel of his presence. But what this reveals is that in chapter 32, when Moses appealed to God to forgive the people, God rejected his appeal because Moses was asking God to forgive the people on a wrong basis. You don't forgive a group of sinners on the basis of a righteous individual offering up his eternal life. That is not a righteous basis to forgive people who have sinned. It's an incredible offer on Moses' part. But that would not be right. It would not be righteous for God to take one man's eternal life and blot him out of the book to cover the sins of others. God can only forgive sinners on a basis that is righteous and that is consistent with his principles and his character. He can't ignore the sins, pretend they don't happen. That would not be righteous. He can't ask one man to die so that no one else has to. That would not be righteous. Nor can he ask one man to give up his eternal life so others can be forgiven. That, too, is not a righteous basis. It was an unsound basis. It was an unrighteous basis. Moses was asking God upon which to forgive the people. 
The events then in chapter 33 of Exodus reveal that Moses needed to learn about forgiveness. And Moses will ask God to be instructed in the ways of forgiveness so that he can reappeal to God for the people to be forgiven. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 33, God tells Moses the people should go up to take the promised land, but his special angel, his, called the angel of his presence, in Isaiah 63 at verse 9, would not be going with them because of their wickedness. And Yahweh said unto Moses in verse 1, Depart and go up thence, go up hence, sorry, thou and thy people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Isaiah 59 verse 2 speaks of how our sins separate us from God. And this was now being experienced by the nation. This change that God announces in verses 1 to 3 greatly troubles Moses. And he will appeal now to God in chapter 33 to, to reconsider his decision and not to take away the special angel. In verses 4 to 6 of, 30, of chapter 33, this change in God's relationship with the nation has a marked impact and a sobering impact on the people. Verse 4, And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on his ornaments. For Yahweh had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. The people respond to God's declaration that he would no longer go with them with weeping and putting off their ornaments used in the evil events of chapter 32. It's a repentant people in chapter 33. They are changing their thinking. They are changing their heart, which is how we'll see tomorrow, Lord willing, is the New Testament meaning of repentance. It's a converted people in chapter 33. They are now walking in a different direction. Again, a reflection of the New Testament definition of being converted. They are a different people. Moses moves the tent of meeting outside the camp to reflect God's displeasure with the people. And each day he would arise and go outside the camp to commune with God. And note the impact that this has upon the people in verses 7 to 10. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone who sought Yahweh went out under the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out under the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door, and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and Yahweh talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped, every man in his tent door, no more sitting down to eat and drink, and then rising up to play. 
Now they are rising up to worship. There are textual connections that the record draws our attention to between chapter 32 and chapter 33 to underscore the fact that the idolatrous people of chapter 32 are now a repentant people in chapter 33. It's the same Hebrew word for rose up in chapter 32 verse 6 that we, and that's used in connection with immorality that we see referenced in chapter 33 in verse 8 and verse 10. It's the same word for worship in chapter 32 at verse 8 in connection with the golden calf as we see in chapter 33 in verse 10. In chapter 32, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play and worship a golden calf. But in chapter 33, when they see the cloudy pillar descend, they rose up to worship Yahweh. Each man at his tent door. A remarkable scene in light of the events of chapter 32. There is Moses going outside the camp each morning to commune with God. And the people take note. And when they see the cloud descend, they bow their heads and worship. As further proof of their changed hearts, their response in chapter 33 is the very same response as Moses in verse 8 of chapter 34. When Moses saw the angel of Yahweh pass by, he bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. And this is now what the people are doing in chapter 33. In verse 13 of chapter 33, Moses makes a special appeal to God for a greater understanding of his ways. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. It's not that Moses doesn't know who God is. He has spent countless time and events with God leading up to this situation. But what Moses doesn't know is how God forgives. And that therein lies the, the need for his education. The people remain unforgiven. And Moses is attempting to, to secure their forgiveness in, in, uh, in chapter 33. Psalm 103, which we'll turn to in just a minute, links the issue of forgiveness with Moses seeking to know God's way. But before we turn there, notice the account in verse 13. Because it identifies for us a pattern that needs to exist in our life. It's worth noting the reason Moses desires to know more about God. Show me thy way, he says, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. You see, there's a link between knowing God and learning about God. And then learning to live what we learn and finding grace in God's sight. We do not find grace in God's sight simply because we learned more about Him. But the peace between learning more about Him and finding grace in His sight comes in the middle. It's when we learn to live what we have learned about. And so Moses is appealing to God in verse 13, Help me to know more about you so that I can begin to reflect what I learn and how I live. So that once I am reflecting those principles and how I live, only then will I find grace in your sight. 
So finding the grace, being found acceptable by God, only results when we reflect his way and his ways in how we live. When we come to Psalm 103, we'll see the link between God's way and God's character and his forgiveness. Most of the things we'll be discussing this week are not new, but it is helpful to see them in the perspective that Scripture presents. Verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 103 define what the ways of God are that Moses was asking to learn more about. Verse 7, he made known, this is God, his ways unto Moses. And this is when Moses had asked to learn more about God's ways. His acts under the children of Israel. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. What God instructed Moses about on the mountain was the righteous basis upon which he forgives sinners. I forgive, he tells Moses, because of my character, which is bound up in my name and my purpose. I forgive because I am compassionate. I am gracious, I am long-suffering, I abound in loving-kindness, and I am faithful to do what I have said. The further proof in Psalm 103 that the revelation of God to Moses and Exodus 34 was primarily dealing with forgiveness is in verses 9 to 14. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He had not dealt with us after our sins, in verse 10, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. God doesn't treat us. He has not dealt with us according to what we deserve. Instead, he forgives us. And the mercy that he shows us is enormous as high as the heavens are above the earth. Just a few months ago, they took one of their wonderful telescopes and put it on a satellite and sent it out into space. And NASA can now report that the galaxy, the universe, is at least 13 billion light years going in one direction. 13 billion light years. And if Christ remains away 10 years from now, it's likely they'll send a more powerful telescope on a satellite that goes even further and finds out that it's 130 billion light years. You can't even imagine what 13 billion light years is. 187,000 miles a second stretched over 13 billion years. But that is how far God is willing to forgive our sins. That is how great his mercy is towards us, as high as the heaven is above the earth. You can't measure the distance between the two because you can't measure God's mercy towards us. And he disposes of our sins. He makes them go away. He blots them out as far as the east is from the west. And we all know you can't measure the east to west. The two never meet. So the point he's making is you couldn't place a greater gulf between us and our sins once God has forgiven us. You you couldn't make the gulf any greater. That's how far he removes them because of his character. 
because he is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and he abounds in loving kindness and truthfulness. That's who he is. It's how he acts. It's what he does. This is the God we worship. In verse 17, David includes a third comparison regarding God's mercy. He's already identified the infinity of space in verse 11. And in verse 12, there is the infinity of distance. And now he uses the infinity of time from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 17, But the mercy or the steadfast love, the kesed, that's the loving kindness of Exodus 34, of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. As we're coming to know the God we worship, Remember Moses' words that we might learn to know God in order to live what we learn so that we can find favor or grace in his sight. Specifically with respect to forgiveness. When he asks us to forgive others and to take those sins that have been committed against us, he is asking us to place an immeasurable gulf between the person and the sin. Just as when we appeal to him and he forgives us, there is an immeasurable gulf that exists between us and our sins. In verses 13 to 14 of Psalm 103, it adds further insight into God's loving and forgiving character. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Yahweh pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Psalm 86 is another time the five characteristics are cited together. We'll just note one example in verse 5. But it's worth recognizing in Scripture when the five characteristics of mercy and grace and long-suffering and loving-kindness and truth or faithfulness are cited in Scripture. In nearly every instance, it's connected with the need for a very sinful people or person to be forgiven. This is a psalm of David in trouble due to the adversaries that are seeking his life. In appealing for God's help, he also acknowledges his need to be forgiven. In verse 5, he states, God is good and ready to forgive. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Forgiveness is not a passive part of God's character. He is at the ready to forgive, and he is prepared to forgive at all times. In this psalm, David couldn't paint the more reassuring picture of God's willingness to forgive those who call upon him. He is not some stern, unforgiving character. He is a loving, forgiving God who is full of mercy. And brethren and sisters, that is the character we should be developing in our life. If we are to reflect the moral power of God's glory now, so that we can be part of that host that will reflect the physical power of his glory in the days to come. This is why it's important for a spiritual man or woman to have this understanding of his character. So too, that when we are weighed down by sin, and we all are, we will be drawn to God in our time of need, asking for his mercy with great confidence and assurance that he will hear us. 
He's listening for us. He is ready to forgive us. He is prepared to forgive us. It's part of his character to forgive us. There is no sin that we can commit that hasn't been committed already, that God hasn't been willing to forgive, provided we approach him on the right basis, because that is his character. He wants us to view him as the one to turn to when sin has been victorious in our life. Not to be left wallowing in our discouragement and despair, as we can so naturally be, but to turn to him in our time of need, because above all else, he is a forgiving God. He's not like the parent who gets so angry every time there's a mistake that the child actually becomes fearful of going to the parent and admitting the mistake because of the consequences that are suffered. And, and parents, if this is our response to our children's mistakes, how will they ever learn to confess their sins? We need to model God's forgiveness for our children and teach them by example. There are steps that the sinner needs to take, and we'll look, at, we'll look at those tomorrow. But for the purposes of this morning's class, we want to underscore just how forgiving God is. But to avoid any misunderstanding, it's important to recognize that God's forgiveness is not extended to all men. The rest of Psalm 86 goes on to describe the character of the individual God, God will forgive. And to whom God has such a forgiving outlook. In verse 1, this person has a humble spirit. In verse 2, he's made a commitment to holiness. In verse 3, he cries daily to God. In verse 4, he lifts his soul up to God, expressing the idea of, of giving his whole being to God. In verse 11, he seeks to be taught so that he can walk in God's ways. So there is a link then between God's forgiveness and the way of life. A person appealing for forgiveness is, uh, is, is reflecting. Turn back to Exodus 34 now. This is the second time when Moses goes up the mountain and appeals to God to forgive the nation. In verse 9, after having seen the moral beauty and the, of the divine personality being revealed and understanding the righteous basis upon which God forgives, he forgives on the basis of his character, on the basis of his eternal purpose. The nation now, a changed nation in chapter 33, in contrition, having confessed their sin, having repented, having changed their walk, God forgives them. Not because one man offered to, to give up his eternal life, but they are forgiven on the basis of God's righteous character. God establishes the fact that sinners must conform their lives to the principles of this righteous character if they are looking to be forgiven. Exodus 34 is not the only place where God's character and eternal purpose are connected with forgiveness. They are connected because his purpose with the earth is to develop a sinful people to be part of that future purpose by transforming their character from walking after the flesh to walking after the spirit. So it's not surprising. In fact, it's to be expected. Along the way, this people that God is looking to transform, from walking after the flesh to walking after the spirit, are going to have numerous failings. And this is why God is willing to forgive them. Because he has the end goal in mind. 
He understands that we are but dust. He understands the strength of the nature that we bear. So in light of his future purpose to fill the earth with his glory, he is quite willing to forgive us without compromising his principles. So that means we need to conform ourselves to the principles that he establishes. Numbers 14, we won't go through the, uh, all of the events there, but it's another example of an enormous sin on the part of Israel. And Moses, this time, turn just for a quick minute to verse 12. Once again, their sin is enormous in Numbers 14. And notice this time, Moses will appeal to God for the forgiveness of the people based upon what he has learned in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. The people have rejected God. They're in rebellion. They're murmuring against him all night. They determined to stone his appointed leaders and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. Once again, as we say, their sin is enormous. and God says he will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses again intervenes with them, with God, sorry, on their behalf in verses 17 to 19. And notice now it's a different request than Moses made in Exodus 32. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, in verse 17 of Numbers 14, according as thou hast spoken. Where had God spoken? He had spoken back in Exodus 34, saying, Yahweh is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. No longer is Moses asking God to forgive the people by offering up his eternal life. He now understands the connection, the foundation of God's forgiveness is the greatness of his character. He is a forgiving God. And Moses links that character of Exodus 34 with the need for the people to be forgiven. It's important to recognize that God does not pardon the guilty. Those who were guilty of having disobeyed him on numerous occasions would not be forgiven. They would not enter the land. You trace through the events of that chapter. Verse 23, they shall not see the land because they have rejected the character upon which God is building the future. And those who reject the character of God, who will not make mercy and grace and long-suffering and loving-kindness and truthfulness part of their character, those who repeatedly take advantage of God's forgiveness, who persist in rebelling against Him, who will pick up stones to slay Moses, the Savior that God has sent to them, to redeem them from Egypt. Those who want to go back to the very pleasures of life that God has redeemed them from, they will not be forgiven. They will not be redeemed. Because they are electing not to be part of the future glory of God. Because they are rejecting the character that was revealed to Moses in Exodus 34. So when we find, brethren and sisters, that we are weighed down by sin, Or when we find that others have sinned against us, remember God's character. This is who he is. This is what he does. 
He is ready to forgive us. He delights in forgiving us because he knows he is doing so with a purpose to take a people who are committed to righteousness and when they fail, even committing grievous sins, if they will respond as he has ordained and recommit themselves to the future that is coming, he will delight in forgiving them because they can then too be part of his character and part of his name and part of his purpose.